one of the most popular TV shows of the last century, it seems weird to even say that, um, was the show Mission Impossible. In fact, some of you grew up with Mission Impossible. You guys remember Mission Impossible? You remember, you know, just the, the kind of interaction that would take place there, a team of government spies who were, you know, specialists and used all these different gadgets, typically to try and do some kind of a mission that was impossible. And here's typically how the, the, the show would begin. Your mission, Jim, should you decide to accept it, is fill in the mission. As usual, should you or any uh, member of your IM force be captured or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your existence. This tape will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, Jim, right? Oh, that's, that's it. Now, some of you are repeating that as I'm saying it. And, and, and of course, you know, th those that are part of our younger crowd, you know, think of Mission Impossible from a, a Tom Cruise perspective, right? It's kind of a, a different mindset there. And the, ga the, the tape recorders are a lot smaller now than they used to be as opposed to these big things. But the same concept. You're going to go on a mission. The, the message is this is what the mission is now. Go and do that. And, of course, it's a, it is a secret mission. It is something that no one else is supposed to know about. Well, they didn't come up with the idea. In fact, if we come to John chapter 7, we're going to find out that there is a secret mission going on. And the person who's carrying out the secret mission ultimately is Jesus, the Son of God. And um, as we come to this chapter, we'll see that Jesus has accepted that mission from the Father. We're faced here with Jesus, the Son of God, on mission during what's called the Feast of Booths. If you're a member, uh, we have for the longest time been looking at uh, some interaction with Jesus during what was called the Feast of Passover. Passover was this link. It was this link to what was going on. It was a time that was connecting the activities with the festival, and there's a lot of that that goes on in the Gospel of John. So really for this chapter, I believe through chapter 9, we have this link of the, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. So this is actually taking place six months after Jesus fed the 5,000 or we say the 15 to 20,000, okay? It's six months after Jesus had a discourse where he talks about being the bread of life, come down from heaven, that, that only answer to man's desire for satisfaction. And when he presented himself as the one um, who needed to have his flesh eaten and his blood uh, drunk, and that was all part of the, the package of that story. Now, six months later, having been in Capernaum, having ministered in Galilee, we find Jesus continuing to do ministry, and um, the beginning now in this chapter takes us then to this particular time. Notice, if you would please, then verse 1 again. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So there's something there's something that's changed a little bit. The, the activity that was present, if you remember in chapter 5, when he presented himself as being equal with God, and the Jewish leaders there in Jerusalem were upset with him, called it blasphemy, and ultimately came to the conclusion that we want to snuff this guy out. That same attitude, that same mentality now is present, and Jesus has not been going into Jerusalem. He's still in Galilee because of that that same desire to, to kill him is present there in Judea. When you think of Judea, just insert Jerusalem. Okay, that's the idea that's being talked about here. So he would not go uh, about uh, in Judea. Verse 2, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So there's this desire to kill him, and uh, there's this desire to snuff him out. But Jesus, we find as we go through chapter 7, is on mission um, and so Jesus talks about that in chapter 7. Look at a few verses with me, if you would, please. Look at verse um, 28 and 29 of John chapter 7. And notice what it says there. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come from my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Right? He who sent me. I have been sent. That's a statement about Jesus being on a particular mission. I know him, for I come from him. He sent me. Look at verse 33. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. All right? Then go back to uh, chapter 7 and verse 6. 
And notice there, it's, Jesus says to them, my time has not yet come. And then verse 8, you go up to the feast, I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. So there's this idea of being sent, there's this idea of timing. In other words, there's, there's a program going on. It's not just Jesus wandering around doing whatever. He has been sent on a particular mission, and that seems to be rising up as what he is communicating in this particular chapter. Notice also verse 30. In verse 30, um, we're told the following. So they were seeking to arrest him. This is John giving commentary now. They were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So again, sent, there's this timing, there's this hour. Um, and so we come, come to the conclusion that, yes, he was in particular on a mission at this point in time. He knew what he was going to be doing. And um, ultimately, you can say his whole life was a life of being on mission. But there's something escalating in the intensity and the difficulty of the, the opposition that creates this context in John chapter 7 right now. So that's why the first part of John is, is, is a little different than the rest of John, and, and it kind of builds towards the end, because at the end, of course, Jesus is taken to a cross, and he's crucified. And here, the, you might want to say the more, more visible, the more active, the more aggressive approach from his opposition um, really comes to the surface. And notice now, uh, just in this passage, a number of different verses. First of all, the Jews are seeking to kill him. Verse 1 tells us about that. Verse 11 tells us about that. And verse 25 tells us about that. Not only that, we're told that, they're told that the Jews are seeking to arrest him. Verse 20 tells us about that. Verse 32 tells us about that. Verse 44 tells us about that. And it wasn't simply the, this internal knowledge of the religious elite that were saying we want to arrest him, we want to kill him. Even the people living in Jerusalem were aware of their desire to kill Jesus, and we find that in verse 13 and verse 25. Look, if you would please, at verse 13. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Okay, Verse 25 um, it says that some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? So this was public knowledge. This is, this is what, was, what the atmosphere was like in Jerusalem. His name was known. The religious elite were out to arrest him, to kill him, ultimately building off of what happened in chapter 5. And now the people in Jerusalem recognize that, and they are a little fearful even of talking about him publicly. So there's this this incredible context of mission and escalating opposition during this Feast of Booze, um, and that is where we find Jesus. And we are going to, once again, meet some of the same people that we've been looking at before. Uh, John uses the expression, the crowds, talking about the people in general. He uses the expression, the Jews, talking about the religious elite. And in particular, we get uh, added here the chief priests and the um, Pharisees listed here in this chapter. And then there's some, some new, or I might want to say some repeating individual characters. We have his brothers that show up here. In fact, the, in, in, this, in our text today, his brothers are going to be saying some things. Later in uh, chapter 7, we have Nicodemus being brought up again. And Nicodemus really is kind of coming to his aid in kind of a, a roundabout way. And so it's, it's, you know, it's important to recognize that John is, is painting a picture here that gives us these various characters, ones that we've already known, new ones he's introducing, and some that he's repeating and bringing back into the story. Now, let's think a little bit about the structure of, um, of this particular um, text, of, of this chapter 7 in particular. Okay? Um, the Feast of Booze, uh, was a feast um, that, that was celebrated every year. It lasted for seven days, and the people actually would either uh, live outside of their homes or on their roofs, depending on if they were in the city or out in the country, and they would build these little, these little kind of booths, so to speak, and they would live under there um, just remembering the journey in the wilderness and God's provision. But it was also a celebration of the, um, the harvest of grapes, and in particular olives, not so much the grains, but the, the, the grapes and the, the olives, and the celebrations because of the time of the year and also the, the, the nature of what was going on in the sky. There were two particular rites 
um, that were celebrated at that point in time. One had to do with water because it was during a time when there wasn't much water. Okay, it was a dry season. And the other one was having to do with light because there was a full moon at that point in time. So when Jesus talks about I am the water of life or I am the light of the world, he's connecting to something that they are already experiencing. That's the point here. So when we see these themes coming up in John chapter 7, he's not just inserting something that is unrelated. He's taking something that is actually present and he is identifying himself as being that particular thing. He's identifying himself as the Son of God, as the Messiah, using the analogies that are all part of the festival. It's actually really incredible how, how he does that. And so the structure here, as you see, uh, verses 1 through 14, the beginning of the festival. So the festival is going to be the guide for us in chapter 7. Some events that take place and during the middle of the festival, and that's more Jesus discoursing. And then at the end, the last day of the festival, there's actually some some division among the people as they're thinking about who Jesus is and what he claims and what he is saying. And it ends up with uh, um, Nicodemus coming in and, and kind of giving some counsel and some direction. That's, that's going to be our structure. I just paint that picture to let you know where we're going and why we have come here now to verses 1 through 14. This is how we determine um, this particular passage. So here, here's my, my proposition for today, my point that I'm going to try and argue that this text is helping us with and is teaching us about. So as we study the activity of John, so the activity, John records the events at the beginning of the Festival of Booze. He wants us to see the contrast between Jesus and his brothers so that we will be alert and careful to do a couple of things. So he's giving us a contrast between Jesus and his brothers for a purpose, to show us some things about him and even about how we do church and even about how we grow in Christ. So we're connecting about here's what, what's going on with Jesus, but then there's the application to his people and what they are to be about, and then there's an the application to us individually. And, and the main points are this. He wants us to be alert and careful to, number one, um, beware of the counterfeit mission. And I'm calling that the mission that is impossible. The counterfeit mission is the mission that, that, is, that is, so to speak, pressed on you, but God is saying, no, that's not what I want you to do. It's the false mission. And for us, as God's children, it should be the mission that is impossible for us. We should not do it. We should not pursue it. Then there is this idea of embracing the divine mission, a mission that is purposeful, a mission which we should be pursuing, that we should be seeking to accomplish, and even Jesus himself is going to encounter both of those things. So just join me, if you would, please. Just let's pause for a moment, and let's just ask for God's help. Lord, um, Lord, what we are not, will you make us? Lord, what we know not, Lord, would you show us and teach us? And Lord, would you help us today as we seek to, to glean from your truth, would you shape our hearts? Would you mold us as a church? Would you mold us as people, Lord, to grab a hold of this, this wonderful nugget of truth, Lord, that is so foundational to our walk with you? Thank you, Lord, for this text. It's, it's always surprising to me, Lord, that um, what we have next is not always what I thought it was going to be. But, Lord, as we dig, as we mine it, and as we plow, Lord, the, the, the ground of your word, um, Lord, you, you give us uh, direction and counsel, Lord, that is rich and purposeful. Lord, thank you for that. Allow me simply to be your messenger and your mouthpiece today, we ask in your holy name. Amen. So we're talking today about, about being uh, careful about this counterfeit mission. And let's just think through a little bit of what's going on here, okay? The feast was at hand, and it seems that Jesus has been staying in Capernaum with his family. Now, we connected that this is about six months later. He, he still has been doing ministry in different places, but he's been there in Galilee, so he's been around family. His family is aware of his gifts and his abilities and what he has done, so to speak. And so now his brothers come to give him 
some advice. All right? Helpful advice, advice for his benefit, and um, let's just think through that. But remember what has already taken place. He, what he came into Galilee to do, he came preaching, he came healing, he came um, with the ministry of compassion, um, casting out demons, healing people of their diseases, and ultimately he performed a sign, and that sign was the feeding of the 5,000. If you remember, the crowds wanted to take him and make him king. They wanted to, to force him to be king. He wanted nothing of it. And then when he went across the lake, the crowds followed him and found him, and again, he, he spoke to them, but they could not handle what he was saying. They did not want to listen to it. They wanted to pursue their own agenda. Then the religious elite, they did they were grumbling, they were complaining, they were arguing about it, and, and they, they ultimately rejected him. And then even um, many of, not most of his disciples could not handle it because it was a hard saying. And they ended up rejecting him and walking away, and Jesus turns to his 12 disciples and says, do you want to go away also? I mean, he, he, this is all whittled down, had this mass of people following him, and now he's left with 12, and we're told by Jesus that even one of them is a betrayer. Now, I, I remind us of all that to simply say this. For those that are on the outside looking at what's going on, this seems like a failure. Jesus, you, you had all these people following you, chasing you, going across the lake to find you, to seek you out, to listen to you, to hear what you had to say. And they were hearing carefully. They were absorbing what you were saying, at least as much as they could understand. But now you only have just 12 and maybe a few rabble others to go there too? It just it seems like Jesus blew a good thing. I mean, why wouldn't you want to continue with all these crowds and people if you wanted to, you know, change the nation of Israel, just build on that? I mean, hey, you know, we've got a church now of 15,000 people. Let's, you know, figure out we can spread the church out because these people come from different places and we can build it and we can establish it. But Jesus whittles it down to 12. doesn't make any sense. Not to those who are on the outside looking in. And that seems to be how Jesus' brothers are looking at the situation. Notice the counsel from the younger brothers. Notice the counsel that they give beginning at verse 3. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea. Again, that's Jerusalem. So that, or that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly if you do these things, show yourself to the world. So Jesus, they're saying, Jesus, listen to us. We know you have some great power, some great gifts, and all that that goes with that. Why are you staying here in Galilee? Now understand, Jerusalem's like, this is the place. Galilee's like, you know, the, the old country town out there where the bumpkins live. Why are you out here when you could be in Jerusalem? you got all these gifts and talents, all these miracles, all these wonderful things you're doing. Why are you hiding here when you could go to Jerusalem? You could just walk into Jerusalem and start, you know, feed 5,000 people in Jerusalem. People will respond. They'll come. They'll see you. They'll be your disciples once again. This all makes sense from a human perspective, from the outside looking in. You know, feed the multitude, heal some more people, cast out a few more de uh, demons. Don't hide. Use what you have, and the, the crowds will come back to you. Now, let's, let's transfer this to 2012. What would this look like today? I thought about this. Try to package it. I hope this is helpful to you, all right? They might be saying, here, listen here, Jesus. What you need is a publicity strategy. Posters. Flyers, slogans, stop saying you can't enter the kingdom unless the Father. Start saying, yes, you can. We can promote it all over Jerusalem. We'll put it on Facebook. We'll, we'll 
create a Twitter account so every time you heal someone, you can Twitter about it, and everyone who's following you will know that you just performed a miracle. It'd be great. People will follow you. People will love you. Now, isn't it true that when the world takes Jesus and forces him into their mold, oftentimes they create a Jesus that is actually quite a popular guy. He's your friend who wants to help you. He's your political lobbyist who wants to make sure your rights and choices are met and understood and accepted by all. He's your personal security guard to get you out of trouble but not to ask any questions. Now, what the brothers are counseling Jesus to do is really no different than what the crowd had wanted him to do. The crowd wanted to force him to go to Jerusalem and be king. The brothers are simply counseling him to do that, but ultimately, both of them are counseling Jesus and encouraging Jesus to abandon his father's plan. Oh, they might say, it a little differently. They might say something like, hey, we're just trying to use our God-given wisdom to see that Jesus gains the following he came here to get. We're helping toward the Father's agenda. But clearly they have no idea of the Father's agenda because they are giving counsel that is rooted in something other than the Father's agenda. How do we know that? Verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. See, John's statement there tells us that what the the counsel they were given was not counsel that was counsel consistent with the Father. This is counsel that's consistent with the world's thinking and attitudes. Their counsel was rooted in unbelief. And friends, we must be very, very careful when it comes to being the church or living our lives according to God's will. When, when the church adopts, and get this, when the church adopts what we have here, which I see is kind of a business strategy to do the church, and, and the basis of doing that, we've stepped out of God's plan and purposes for building his kingdom. When the church starts saying things like, um, you know, we need to be like a restaurant, and we You know, we want to get customers. We need to be like a fitness club and and get members. We need to be like a a hotel and service the needs of our guests. Say, is that really out there? Can I ask you, is that really out there? My experience is yes. A number of years ago, I went to a pastor's conference. And um, it was an interesting pastor's conference because it was kind of local. It was in the kind of northern here, California area. And it was at a particular local church, and the pastor of that church gave a workshop on how they grew their church. Here is what he said. This is pastors sitting in this room waiting to find out what's the key, what's the secret. He said, we took our leaders, our deacons, our elders, and we went to, and I can't remember what it was, but it was one of the premier hotels in San Francisco. He said, we parked ourselves there for three days, and we watched how they served people. We took those principles, brought them back to our church, implemented them, and that's the reason why our church has grown. And I'm sitting there thinking, and where does the Bible fit in with this? There was nothing that was shared in that conference that communicated God's truth being applied and used for the glory of God And that God is the one that determines whether your church is going to grow. I mean, he literally turned around and said, listen, if you do the same thing, your church will grow. Well, it might add people. People like to be served, right? Hey, listen, I'll open the door for you if that makes you feel better, right? You don't have any bags to carry, you know. You can certainly tip. I mean, that, that works too, I don't want to add that to the context of church. No. But see, when we, we take, we take the, you know, business mindsets, worldly mindsets, and say, hey, let's, let's use those as the basis for how we do church, we've abandoned God's strategy. Establishing and running the church is a unique function and calling. We don't improve on God's plan. We submit to it. We conform to it. We train God's people in it. We trust it. Who are we to improve on it? 
Now, let me step aside. Are there certain things that we should do decently and in order? What's the answer? Yeah, if we have finances, we want to be wise and we want to be diligent to make sure we're doing things well. So it's not saying that there are no business principles that should be applied in the church. The point is, the power of what you're doing as a church is not based on strategic business strategy. It's not about marketing. One of the things that we've said has to be central in our church is that we prioritize the gospel and the ministry of the word. That doesn't mean that other things are not important, but those are central. And the same is true about your walk with God. God has given each of you gifts and talents. The question is, what do you do with those gifts and talents? Now, sadly, you can look at some, I want to say, musicians or artists in greater pop history, I use pop in the, in the broad category, who have started out in the context of the church. And now, if you were to listen to the content of their words, the lifestyles that they have, you would be asking yourselves, how in the world were they even in a church to begin with? And friends, listen, the church, from the outside looking in, is a great place as a stepping stone, as a training ground for things that are greater when it comes to gifts and abilities and talents. You have a musical gift, ah, use it, develop it. But just, the church is kind of a stepping stone to the real stuff. You have the gift of communication, oh, fine, use it, you know, but that might be the gift, in, you know, you can develop and use for, for other stuff. The point is, we've got to be very, very careful that God has given us gifts, and we are using those gifts not for self-promotion, but for the benefit and the blessing of his church. So when we come in and say, well, you know, I play such and such instrument, you know, here's my card, and here are my CDs, and wait a second. I know there's a lot of you that play instruments that won't even tell us that you play instruments. I mean, if we actually had, had you write out all the instruments you play, you're like, oh, I, don't, I don't want to put this down. Yeah. But listen, I, we want to know those things because we want, we want people to use their gifts. But if someone walks in the door saying, you know, I'm the next worship leader here because I have all this talent. You know what we're going to say? That's nice. Um, you can come. And we'll see your growth, and we'll see your character, and we'll see everything else. But simply having the gift is not the issue. And we've got to be careful, friends, in the context of our own personal walk with God, that we're not trying to, trying to present ourselves and prove ourselves and show ourselves, Lord, let, let another person praise you, Scripture says, right? And I'm not saying we shouldn't identify gifts and, and nurture them and, and, and strengthen them and, and, and rise them up and help people with those gifts. We should. But there, we got, there's a fine line there, and I hope you understand there's a fine line there between self-promoting and being promoted and being lifted up and being used by God in the context of ministry. Now, Jesus then comes back after these brothers have said, listen, the world will love you, and notice the, the clarity that Jesus gives here um, to uh, his brothers. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet come. After this, he remained in Galilee. So let's just think a little bit about what's going on here. He talks about my time. And then a little later in the chapter, he talks about my hour. And just understand here, the, word, the expression my time and my hour are talking about two separate things. Okay, so let's clarify this. The, the expression, my hour, uniquely describes the, the period all around the death of Christ, might want to say the passion and ultimately his exaltation, his entrance into Jerusalem and his ascension into heaven. That's all part of this hour, which has as its focal point the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's all part of the hour. So when he's talking about the hour, he's looking forward to that time when the beginnings of those things are starting to take place. When he's talking about my time, he's talking about the particular specific timing of the unfolding of God's program, unfolding of God's will. So Jesus ultimately is saying here that he is confined by the timing of the Father. He is one with the Father, get this, but in the economy of the Godhead, the Father, it's the Father who orders and oversees the plan. It's the Son who willfully submits to the plan. This is unity with complete harmony, working together. 
And so we see Jesus you know, saying, you know, not my will, but the Father's, right? Pausing and praying, if it be your will. And it's not that he hasn't been a part of the planning of it and being a part of, of the organization of it. It was all established before the creation of the earth, but his role is to submit to that ongoing plan. And that's, that's how we understand the economy of the Godhead taking place. So there are specific times uh, that Jesus is talking about here that are looking forward to the hour of um, what Jesus was going to accomplish on the cross. So Jesus here is saying to his brothers, you are free to go when you like, but I am under divine constraints. It's not that, hey, I don't like hanging around with you guys, so I'm not going to go. I'm going to go by myself. It's, I can't go with you because it's not the time to do that. The Father has not revealed that to me. Secondly, he's also saying you lack an appointed time because you are part of the world. You are unbelievers. You aren't even, you know, you aren't even thinking about what God desires and wants. Now, um, he says in this passage, the world cannot hate you. Isn't that a pretty interesting statement? Why is it that the world cannot hate them? Because they aren't believers. John says they weren't believers at this point in time. Now, we know that at least James was, right? Ultimately, eventually, right, his half-brother of Christ, he was pastor in Jerusalem. But at this point, that wasn't true. The world cannot hate you. Why? Because you're unbelievers. You live according to your own drumbeat. You care nothing for God's agenda but only your own. Therefore, you come and go without thinking or considering God's agenda. You're, You're driven by your own plans. The world doesn't care about people like that. In fact, they don't care because that's who they are. So they're not going to hate you. But he says, I am driven by a divine timetable and a divine message. And what is that message? He says, to testify that the works of the world are evil. And because of that, the world will hate me. Just get the big picture here. They're saying, Jesus, go down to Jerusalem, perform more miracles, do more of those things that are part of your giftedness. I mean, hey, don't hide. Show yourself. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to go do that. It's not my timing. And actually, ultimately, if I were to do that, they aren't going to love me. They're going to what? They're going to hate me. See, they had no clue. Now, I just want to step back a little bit here and just think through this for our own purposes here. Some application here for us. And hear this. The message of the world runs contrary to the message of the Godhead. Does it not? The purposes of the world run contrary to the purposes of the Godhead. We've got two completely different messages, two completely different purposes, and they often come and compete with each other, and they compete with each other in our own lives. So our job is to do, and I've listed it in this way, there are three things I think we ought to do, just based on what we've looked at so far and how we've gleaned from this passage so far. Our job, first of all, is this, is to know God's will, to value it, to seek it, to desire it. Now, oftentimes we think about God's will as, you know, you know the big things in life, right? You know, who am I going to marry? You know, what, if you're a college student or young adult, you're thinking, you know, what, what major am I going to have? If you're out of college, you're thinking, you know, what job and who am I going to marry? And those are the big things, right? And there are big things that we need to be praying about and considering what God has for us as far as his will. But God's will is also a daily thing, right? It's saying no to sin. It's saying yes to the things that are going to help me grow my walk with God. Okay? So the first thing is know God's will. Secondly, it would be be alert to the dangerous influences of the world. So we're pursuing God's will. As we're pursuing God's will, we are being alert to the various dangerous influences of the world. It's thinking, it's plans, it's attitudes, and it comes to us through all different avenues. It's plausibility. It's reasonableness. I mean, isn't there something about what the brothers are saying that in one sense sounds reasonable? You know, someone finds out they have this great gift in the church. Hey, why don't you do something with it? Hey, we can, you know, put it on CD and we can, 
you know, we can market it, get on the internet and do all, and, and there's, there's an element where there's a reasonableness to that. That's how you do things in our culture, in our society. But that was not Jesus' plan. That was not the Father's plan. And so we've got to be careful that we're not, we're not being influenced unnecessarily by the things of the world. This is where Romans 12.2 comes in, where it says, do not be conformed to this world. Literally, don't be pressed into the world's mold but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So don't be squeezed into the world's mold. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which means you fill your mind with God things, with God's word, with his will and his heart to help fight and fashion your thinking so that you will be doing his will. All of us live in this area. Every day when we wake up, this is the arena that we live. God, I want to do your will but there are other ideas that come through. There are other pressures that come through. And Lord, help me to navigate that so that I can be doing your will at the end of the day. We all struggle with that, right? So here's the third thing. Determine to fight in your soul against the barrage of ideas that will draw you away from doing his will. So it's not just, okay, God, God wants me to be a firefighter, okay? Just thought of a firefighter. I'm going to be a firefighter. Okay, as if that's it. There's all this struggle now that's going on in my soul because I'm hearing all these different ideas that are competing against what God desires for me to be, not only vocationally for my life, but just in my own character and in, in my walk with God, just beating on me and screaming at me through all different avenues. And I've got to fight in my soul to say, God, I want you. I want you to be central. I want your gospel to be present. I want your power that only comes from you. So help me to fight with the tools that I have to stay on track, to conform myself to your will rather than be squeezed into the world's mold. And his brothers were trying to squeeze him into their mold. Were they not? So friends, we must be careful of a counterfeit mission. Secondly, we need to embrace what I'm calling the divine mission. Verse 10, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. You say, well, wait a second. That seems like it's a contradiction. Jesus says, I'm not going to go, and now he's going. What's up with that? Um, it is now God's timing. <laughs> All right? His timing was not to go with his brothers, but his timing was to go up a little later. So Jesus does eventually go up to Jerusalem at the Father's appointed time and in the Father's appointed way. He doesn't go up publicly. He goes up privately. And get this, his brothers counseled a bold public display of power for Jesus. The Father proposed a quiet private journey, the complete opposite of what the brothers were saying you should do. So it was private. It was discreet in its mission. Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Now remember, the Jews are these religious elite. They're actively looking for Jesus. And so he's clearly walking into a hostile environment where the question is being asked, where is he? Where is he? And we're told in the context that they're out to get him, they're out to arrest him, they're out to kill him, and now they're asking people, where is he? They're, they're hoping the festival will draw him out. And guess what? The festival is drawing him out, not as if they're drawing him out, but he is going to Jerusalem for the festival. But it's all according to the sovereign plan of the Father, not man's plan and ideas. It's all completely and totally under control. And just remember some other passages we looked at so far in the Gospel of John where it said things like, he knew what he would do. He knew what they were thinking. Jesus is functioning now according to the divine plan. It's not as if oh no, what's going to happen here in this context of opposition where people want to arrest him to kill him? Oh no, what's going to happen? Although that's the context and it's, it's powerful and it's, it's increased and it's serious, there is nothing here that anyway pulls God and pulls Christ away from accomplishing the mission that he has set out to accomplish. So we have here in verse 12 some private mutterings. 
I think the word muttering is kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean, have you read that, that much in Scripture right here? And there was much muttering. There you go. Much muttering going on about him among the people. I think the idea here with this much muttering is this. It's more like a fearful whispering among the crowd, among the people. This isn't the religious elite. These are the people on the streets. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear the Jews, of the Jews, no one spoke openly. So let's just pick up these two things, these two conclusions. First of all, he's a good man. This is not a recognition of his divine essence. But it is a recognition of the results of his ministry. People had been healed. People had been fed. People have had demons cast out of them. Whatever you want to say there, he has done some good things. There's some good that has come out of that particular ministry. So he is a good man, but not necessarily a God man, okay? That's not what's going on here. They're not saying he's a God man. They're just saying it's, it's just been good. Then they say, no, he's leading people astray. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. Isn't this how the crowd views Jesus? Isn't this, might want to say, how people, even in our context, view Jesus? He is a God, or he's a good man. He is gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He's your helper. He's your healer. He's your comforter. He's your friend. Now, all those things are true, are they not? But they're an incomplete picture of who Jesus is. Last night, on Fridays, uh, sorry, on Saturdays, I typically you know, take time to go over my message and think through a lot of different things. And so last night I was at Panera, and there's this, this younger gentleman who was there. He was single, and uh, um, he said, hey, hello. And, you know, and so I, I've seen him a few times, and he started talking. He was kind of a chatty kind of a guy. Um, and... Uh, you know, in my heart, I'm thinking, you know, I got things to do, but I thought, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll engage him. And at that point in time, I was just setting things up. And he just asked me, say, hey, what are you doing? And I told him, well, I said, you know, I'm a pastor of a local church, and, um, you know, I'm just putting some final touches on my sermon. I like to do this on Saturday and just kind of get away and think about it. He says, oh, he says, yeah. He says, I went to seminary for a while. He says, but I stopped going because I, I just, I had a hard time with the professors. I just didn't, I didn't like what I was hearing. And, and ultimately, he started to, to go down this path of uh, his disillusionment with not only the church, but just with religion in general, but in particular, you know, saying, you know, Jesus would want us all to sit together and to figure this out so that there'd be no more war. You know, we want the, the Muslims and the Christians and the, the Mormons all just to kind of sit together. He says, I was at the seminary. I had a Mormon on this side and, a, a, you know, I had, I had someone else on this side from a different religion. Of course, I'm thinking, where is that place, all right? And, and <laughs> you, know, you know, but he's like, okay, and you know, I probably wouldn't last there much either, but you know, the point is he, he was he basically coming to a conclusion based on his disillusionment and his discouragement with conflict within the church that he had experienced that Jesus ultimately wants people to get along with each other. And that you take that idea and you magnify that across the world. What does that mean? No war. You know, world peace. Now, friends, I do not mean to be funny. I do not mean to be silly. I do not mean to be facetious. But Jesus did not come into this world to stop war and to usher in an era of utopian peace around the earth. He came to die on a cross so that you and I might have peace with God. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, will one day cast every believer into the lake of fire. I wonder what his demeanor is going to be when he does that. And prior to that, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is going to exercise judgment on all those who oppose him. Read the book of Revelation. See, it's a distorted picture of who Jesus is. It's, it's dishonest. It comes from a desire that is, that is good. I understand. We don't want conflict. We want some peace. I get all that. And I realize there have been distorted pictures of, of Jesus and Christianity on the other side. They just want war and ravaging and, you know, conquest and all that. I understand that. But the, the, the Jesus of the Bible is multifaceted. He's not just one-sided with this kind of positive, warm, fuzzy kind of tone to him. He is a package deal. Now, that's the, that's the you know, he's a, he's a good man. Then there's this, 
He's a charlatan. He's a deceiver. He's a fraud. And the whole concept that you hear in our culture might go along something like this. You know, the concept of Jesus being God was a political deception perpetuated by the church, right? A group of people raised this guy up, and they created these stories about who he was. He really wasn't the Son of God, but, you know, he was accepted as the Son of God. Well, if he's accepted as the Son of God, the church was created, and they perpetuate that idea that he was the Son of God, and people believe him, and it works, and they gain power, and it's all their fault. And so if you follow the church, if you follow Christ, understand this, you have been deceived. You're following a lie. This is the idea that I'm saying is out there. Don't, I'm not saying this about me. I'm not saying you need to do this, right? Because some of you are like, Really? Is Rod really saying this, right? But this is the idea, that he is actually a charlatan. He's a deceiver. He's a fraud. Those are, those are some distorted pictures of Christ. Listen, we, we, we have three distorted pictures of Christ um, that have been presented. He is the sensational miracle worker. He is this good man, and he's a fraud. And friends, the same faulty arguments will always be present until the Lord returns. You know that? We're never going to get to a day until the Lord returns where there aren't going to be some kind of spin meisters out there trying to tell you that Jesus really isn't who he said he was going to be. Because unbelief cannot tolerate having its evil exposed. Because unbelief hates Jesus, the Jesus that is fully and completely represented in the Bible. They don't like that Jesus. So Jesus has entered Jerusalem, and, he, and where he, he's only finding hostility. And, and I, I did kind of separate this. There's this physical hostility, right? When I arrest him, we want to kill him. But there's also this philosophical, religious hostility as far as these attitudes to who he really is. But now notice verse 14. We've gone from, I'm sorry, private muttering. Did you get all that? To public preaching. Private muttering to public preaching. Here we, ha- we are made aware of God's perfect timing. Now, the actual data, if you want to put it structurally, ends at verse 13. But I, I included verse 14 because of what we find in verse 14 that Jesus is doing. And as we've gone through this passage, you may have noted this kind of theme that has taken place, this theme of, of um, you know, the secret undercover mission to this open public kind of display. His brothers want him to go openly, and Jesus is going privately in secret. All right, And we, we, we have this, this theme kind of held at bay through verses uh, verse 13, this public-private secret open theme, you know, and, and because of the hostility that's going on in the context, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, he is going public, but the people are still speaking about him what? In private. <laughs> so there's this kind of, this theme kind of working around in this text, right? But listen, they're, they're speaking about Jesus, and Jesus then enters the temple, and he begins to boldly and publicly Um, teach and and reveal himself. He isn't coming into Jerusalem, get this, to perform miracles. So he's not coming in to do what his brothers are asking him to do. He comes in privately and he ends up going to the temple and he begins to teach. There's no fanfare. There's no banners. There's no signs. There's no publicity campaigns. There's no caravans. There's no special staging for him at all. He simply breaks his secret mission, and he comes to do what he has been called to do all along, and that begins with teaching. And we find that unfolding in this chapter specifically through some words that are used, the word teaching, the word proclaiming, uh, ultimately the word bearing witness, which would be what we have there in verse 14. Um, sorry, it's not in verse 14 there, but um, we'll, we'll get to that in just a minute. But these, these three words, actually in, in the ESV, um, you have this expression cried out. In fact, look, if you would please, at verse 3 and 4. The brothers say, come, do miracles, promote yourself. Verse 14, teaching. Verse 28, notice what it says in verse 28. All right, he proclaimed as he taught. All right? So there's, this, there's a different word being used here. He's teaching, but he's proclaiming. In verse 37, it says he stood up and cried out. Talk about, you know, kind of bringing the attention to yourself here. 
But he's not doing it with miracles. He's doing it with teaching. Now, look, if you would, please, at verse 7. What is it that he is teaching? According to Jesus, verse 7, the world cannot hate you because it hates me because I, what? I testify about about it that its works are evil. The word testify here means to give witness, to bear witness. So he's coming in and he is testifying, he is giving witness to the world that their works, their lives, their attitudes, their behavior are all rooted in their unbelief. They're rooted in hearts that are ultimately evil. John 3, 19 says something very similar. We've already looked at this. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the, wor- and the people love the darkness rather than light because their works were what? Evil. The light has come. Jesus has come. Now, it's not just, you know, Jesus kind of jumps in and goes, boom, here I am. And he's shining light and people go, ah. They don't know what he's communicating until he does what? He opens his mouth. Until he says something. Until he reveals something. Now, friends, this is so very, very important. People of the world are like cockroaches scattering when the slightest light enters the room, when, when he opens his mouth and he begins to speak. But when the darkness comes, when the darkness is, is present, they are active, safe, and free, at least in their thinking, to do as they please. But Jesus comes and he comes to expose the ungodly for who they are. But also in that exposure to draw people to himself. The result of Jesus' preaching, teaching, and bearing witness is that he would suffer. Now let's, we're going to read a few verses here from the, from the various Gospels. Look if you at Mark chapter 10, if you have your Bibles. Mark chapter 10 and verse 33 and 34. Now granted, this is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. There are others around him, but notice what he says. Mark chapter 10, verse 33, saying, we, we see we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, talking about himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. After three days he will rise. This is a statement of Jesus' understanding as to what his mission is, right? Now, the Gospel of Mark, there's like four of these statements in the flow of the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is reminding or saying to the disciples, the disciples are like, what? I don't get it, all right? But that's what he says his purpose is. Look at Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Okay, again, in Luke's Gospel, similar things are said. There is a mission, there is a purpose, but it includes suffering. It includes some other things too. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 23. Now we get into the epistles. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 23. When he was reviled and did not revile in return, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges, judges justly. He suffered them in, the, in this, this context. 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, Um, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So there's this whole idea of suffering, which is also encompassing the following things. The cross, I want to say the death, the burial, uh, the resurrection, and ultimately the ascension. Now, the point that we need to recognize here is this. I just want to kind of look at verses 1 through 14, kind of in, in total here, and, and, and see what John is wanting to point out for us. We need to recognize this, and we need to see that John is making this point, that to many within Christendom, um, uh, or say too many within Christendom, are compelled with the sensational pursuit of miracles and power. Now, let me just step back and explain um, what I'm talking about here. That's what we find with Jesus' brothers, isn't it? It's your miracles, it's your power that just need to be on display. And if you just display those things, you'll get a following. Now, friends, hear this. 
This is, this is really important. This is something that just God just kind of really impressed upon me as I was studying this. Miracles do not convert people. But they point to Christ. Miracles done by Jesus, they are done by Jesus, but they also need to be explained. So if Jesus just simply comes and performs a miracle, does someone look at that miracle and say, aha, I understand the gospel? What's the answer? Answer is no. Miracles are simply to point to who Jesus is. But Jesus comes, yes, caring for people, showing that he has compassion, demonstrating his power, showing that he is, you know, by virtue of what he's doing, the Son of God. But you're not going to know any of the details until what? Until he opens his mouth and begins to teach. And when he begins to teach, all those people that came because they experienced his miracles... When Jesus begins to speak and talk about what was true and what they were required to do and what God expected of them, they said, well, I don't know. Those miracles were great, but I'm not listening to this stuff anymore. When we are consumed, when we are caught, when we are sidetracked by miracles and power, and our God is a miraculous and powerful God, but when we are sidetracked by those things, often what happens is we don't take the Word of God seriously anymore because all we want is the next miracle, the next thing, whatever it might be. Now, friends, I do believe that as we pray and as we experience life together, God is going to do some incredible, sensational things in the lives of his people. He does things like that, right? He provides money in the mail when you weren't expecting it. He provides maybe a promotion at work. Or he might, he might provide us a, a bad circumstance, but in that circumstance, you understand that it was through that circumstance that this person was able to come and, and connect with you or whatever it might be. And you see God's hand at work in all these things. You're like, you know, I could never orchestrate that. But God is at work orchestrating all those things. God does sensational things in the life of his church. But hear this, the sensational things will not save. And those sensational things do not communicate the gospel, but they are a means to point to Christ. And we point to Christ and say, Christ, what do you say about this? And you say a lot of things about yourself. You say a lot of things about what you expect of us. And so we need to listen to what you say. Not just follow your example in what you do. Now, does Jesus do a lot of good things? Absolutely. You see, Jesus was also a preacher. <laughs> and Jesus comes preaching and explaining who he is in the economy of God's plan. That becomes the basis of understanding for the apostles as they explain the, you know, the, the gospel in the epistles. It's the content, it's the teaching that is critically important here. It's not that the miracles and power are unimportant, but it's the central dynamic here of the ministry of teaching, of preaching, of testifying that Jesus brings that is significant. And that's why we establish in our church that the ministry of the Word is central. God is using me as pastor-teacher, but he uses you in your various contexts of small groups and family to minister the Word. We need to be feeding on the Word. We need to be exposing ourselves to the Word. So, this brings us then to the place where we say, hmm, if that is true, then maybe we need to know the Word of God, apply the gospel, and proclaim it. That means that we ought to be knowing his word, applying his word, and proclaiming. This is all part of the core central realities of who we want to be, all right? So you see this incredible story unfold, but the focus of attention here is Jesus comes with the secret mission, not to perform miracles, but to get into the temple and do what? To teach. That's the power. That's what's important. Now, some concluding thoughts. I have two of them. And hopefully this will give you some things to think about as, as you leave. God has a plan for your life. Do you believe that? He has a mission for you. He has a purpose for you. However you want to describe that, God has that for you. 
And listen, don't be consumed with, you know, I want God's perfect mission. I want God's perfect plan. You have already failed at that because you sinned, right? Anyone here sin? Audience participation, honesty, very good. Glad to hear it. Since you sinned, that perfect plan is gone. All right? So some people talk about God's permissive will, God's perfect will. Listen, we're, we're all beneficiaries of what you might call God's permissive will, if you want to use that language. All right? Plan B. It happened as, as soon as I, you know, had a temper tantrum when I was uh, two-day-old, whatever. All right? However, that, that, wherever that time came when, when sin was very, very clear to me. All right? But sin was also in me, so that just means that's who I am. But this, this, there's this competing pressure from the world, from well-meaning believers, and this is the place where you've got to be careful, right? Well-meaning believers, and even from within, that is pushing us away from God's agenda and from his purposes for our lives. Certainly we understand the world. That makes sense, you know. Turn on the TV, listen to radio, just listen, be careful, be careful, be careful what you are listening to, what you're drawing in, what you're consumed with. Now listen, if you have, this is, this is an election year. What can happen during an election year? All right, Bible-believing Christians can get all riled up about what? About politics. Is there a, is there a need for, for God's people who are citizens of this country to exercise their responsibility and to be a part of the political process? What's the answer? I would say yes. But if you find yourself day after day after day being consumed with political talk, guess what? That's going to be what you're thinking about all the time. And that's how it might drive you away from doing what God's called you to do. It might drive a church to move from its responsibility of reaching people for the glory of God to simply being an agent for political change. We've got to be careful of that. All right? Got to be careful from considering well-meaning believers. There are a lot of good people who have well-meaning counsel that may not be biblical, may not be God speaking at all. And they're saying to you, with worldly wisdom, here's what you need to do. And friends, you need to be to the place where you're taking God's word, you're, you're understanding what it is saying and how God is speaking to you with what you have before you and that you're not just embracing some counsel simply because a person is a believer. You've got to be Bereans. Right? And, and, and in the multitude of counselors, there's great wisdom. Not in the multitude of many counselors, I find one that agrees with me. You figure out what God wants you to do. Be careful of well-meaning believers. And then, of course, there's this battle within, right? And this is, this is probably the biggest struggle. We don't talk about it that much. I want to do what I want to do. It's called my desires, which ultimately become sinful idols of the heart that I choose to do because I want to do them. All right? So God has a plan for your life, but be careful of these competing pressures that are there. All right? Secondly, his plan for your life is a lifelong pursuit. Do you agree with that? Some of you have been pursuing life for a long time. That's a nice way of saying it, isn't it? I've been pursuing life for a long time. Listen, it is a lifelong... We, we have not arrived. We are still in process. We are still growing. And there's some things that we need in order to do God's will, in order to pursue God's will. We need Him. We need the Word that is there in the beginning of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word. We also need His instructions. That would be the Word of God. We also need each other, the church of God. And God, God gives us Christ, His Word, and His church, and, of course, the ministry of the Godhead fashioning and shaping us so that we can do His will. Now, friends, we're, we're not called to do His will in secret, but we're called to do His will. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to, you know, wear a T-shirt saying, you know, I'm, I'm following God and everyone needs to know it, all right? It's just saying we, we, we live our lives in such a way that, that we want to honor him, we want to live for him, and these are resources that we need. So don't try and do God's will in isolation. Guess what? You need Christ, you need his word, his instructions, his guidance, the ministry of the Holy Spirit that goes through that. You also need the church family. Because, friends, you're going to fail. Do you know that? You're going you're to stumble. 
And God's people are there to help pick you up and help get you back on the path and to help restore you. You know, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, and righteousness. Those last few statements are all about what happens when you fall off the path. For doctrine, for reproof, for correction. No one likes to be reproved or corrected, but we do, if we understand, it gets us back on the path. There's a mission for us, and God has this mission for us. There's a mission for our church. There's a purpose for us, and we need to be diligent, to be prayerful, and eager to do it and seek God's help and, and, and fight all those influences that may take us off the path for doing his will. Now, Lord, help us today. There's a lot for us to think about. You yourself were under the same kind of pressures that we are under at many times. And sometimes those words of counsel come from unbelievers in the context of work. Sometimes they come in the context of unbelievers or well-meaning friends and believers, Lord, in the context of education, um, in the context even of the church, um, or maybe it's the context of family, just like you are facing. And Lord, your example for us is simply to rest in the purpose that God the Father had for you. And for us, Lord, that would mean that we need to be discerning to do your Father's will ourselves. And although other people's counsel may be well-meaning, may be helpful, it also, Lord, may distract us or draw us away from doing what you're calling us to do. Lord, if you call us into a context that is hostile, then, Lord, you are taking us there for a reason. If you're calling us into a context that's difficult, Lord, you're taking us there for a reason. It's your plan. So, Lord, help us grab a hold of what you're doing to seek to do it for your glory. And, Lord, to trust that in doing your will, you're accomplishing your purposes through us. Sometimes we may not even see what you're doing. We may not see the results, but, Lord, we, we want to give you the glory. So, Lord, help us today to, to continue or to begin to build on that foundation, Lord, of pursuing the mission that you have called us to. We ask in your precious name. Amen.